Now, we've been going through the book of Ruth for, um, now this will be the, actually the 17th message that we've had in this book. Uh, we are going to take a little brief step away from the book of Ruth next Sunday, and we're going to do a little mini-series called The Trojan Horse of Critical Race Theory, and a three-part series because this is such a big thing. In fact, it's vitally related to what our own pastor spoke on this morning in relationship to why there's so much going on in the government, so many laws that are being changed and so on. And so you're going to be able to see this because we want to interact with what is often referred to in our culture as wokeness or um, also critical race theory. And the third area has to do with intersectionality. Those three things are, to many, many Christians today, foreign concepts. And once we're able to study it, I think you're going to be able to see how um, a lot of the stuff that now is going on in the world starts to make sense. And now you'll be able, once it makes sense, you'll see the direction of it. And once it makes sense, then you'll also be able to see what Scripture says about it clearly. But this morning, we want to go back to the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bible, let's go back to Ruth chapter 2 is what we're interested in. But before we get to Ruth chapter 2, let's just temporarily for a moment, let's go over to Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 24. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 24, and I want you to think about this for a moment. Proverbs 20, verse 24. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? That means um, your steps... Every step you take is ordained by the Lord. If you go back to chapter 16 of Proverbs and verse 9, he says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. You ever think about this? Every step that you make is ordained by the Lord. What do we call that? Well, in theology, we call that providence. That's what we call that. And our message today is entitled Providential Protection. It's our 17th message in the book of Ruth, and we're really zeroed in on verses 21 through verse 23. Now, through the entire series that we've been doing in the book of Ruth, we've been focusing off and on on the providence of God. And in fact, we've entitled the entire series, Unexpected Redemptive Providence. That's the entitlement of the entire city series, Unexpected Redemptive Providence. God's providence is the historical outworking of his eternal decree in bringing about historical redemption of his elect through the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all races of man, and in meeting the needs of his chosen ones. Now, that's the shortest way that I could describe it. Let me read it again, all right? When we're talking about God's providence, God's providence is the historical outworking of his eternal decree in bringing about historical redemption of his elect through the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all races of man, and in meeting the needs of his chosen ones. Now, even though the actual term providence is not in Scripture, the doctrine of it is very definitely there. Lewis Burkhoff says in his Systematic Theology, he says, 
While the term providence is not found in Scripture, the doctrine of providence is nevertheless eminently scriptural. This is what the book of Ruth is really all about. It's not about the faith and the virtues of Boaz or Ruth, but it is about how God has worked through their faithfulness to accomplish his purposes. God has worked to bring together a devoted older Jewish man, that's Boaz. Most Bible scholars believe that he's probably in his 50s, so by that cultural standard, he was rather an older man. Not by our cultural standards, because 50s is the new 30s now, you know. But by that culture, he was an older man. And this young Gentile Moabite woman, Ruth, who most scholars believe when you add up all the circumstances, everything that happens was probably in her 20s. A very unlikely couple. Very unlikely couple. All the dating websites in the world would have never put these two ethnically diverse enemies together as a match. Would have never happened. And that is the key, isn't it? God does not look at our common interests or our compatibility or whether they like moonlight walks on the beach. He looks at their hearts, not their hearts for each other, but their unquestioned loyalty to him. When you carefully study Ruth chapter 1, it begins with famine, the dark shadow of three deaths, Elimelech, Malone, Chilean, obscuring all hope. Naomi becomes bitter, blames Yahweh for abusing her, losing her husband, her two sons. And you can see that back in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 20. It's very depressing and a foreboding chapter. However, things radically change in Ruth chapter 2. Yahweh provides for Ruth and Naomi a very unexpected way through Boaz's caring provision and protection. Naomi's bitterness evaporates in the scorching sunlight of unexpected provision and She begins to see that it is the Lord who is the one who should receive credit for everything that has happened in bringing this turnaround. In fact, Naomi says in verse 20 of Ruth chapter 2, says, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. That is such a key verse because it marks a substantive turnaround in her life. Naomi is a changed woman. She's no longer bitter, as we saw back in chapter 1, and she wanted to be called Mara. That was the Hebrew word for bitter. Now she is back to being sweet. That's the Hebrew meaning behind Naomi, pleasant, sweet. She's gone from bitter to sweet now. Isn't that nice? She's back to what she was before. Now, Naomi didn't see this as fate. Fate is an arbitrary thing, and it has no real purpose or goal. These events are very specific, and they have a very specific purpose in Yahweh's redemptive plan. Naomi didn't see this as lady luck. 
luck as an impersonal set of favorable circumstances. Instead, she knew it was a result of the loving kindness of Yahweh, who was personally involved in overseeing their welfare. Naomi didn't believe that the force was with her because the force doesn't care, it doesn't love, it doesn't promote righteousness. Her Lord cares, loves, purposes, plans, and does things that are always good. Naomi didn't see this as serendipity at work. Serendipity rests upon unintentional positive outcomes without any reference to God. Naomi knew Yahweh was at work here and everything that had happened was very much intentional. After all, the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. Naomi didn't believe that it was inevitable history at work. Marxists constantly promote that idea. History is on our side, they say. Like a snowball rolling downhill can't be stopped. With this view, history takes on divine dimensions. No, Naomi knew a rational, loving God was at work on their behalf, orchestrating all of the details of these events for his righteous purpose and for their good. The question is, do you understand this to be true with what's going on in your life, even today? As we mentioned earlier in our series, all of these assumptions are counterfeit forms of providence. Ruth chapter 2 and verse 20 marks a significant turning point in Naomi's perception of her and Ruth's lives. The book of Ruth forces you to grapple with the fact that God is at work in every detail of your life, both what you perceive of as good and then what you perceive of as being bad. Now, why is it important for you to believe this? Because even in the darkest days of your life, there will be an unshakable foundation of hope that the unfolding of those hard events are under the control of a caring and wise Lord who loves you and cares more deeply than anyone else about your welfare. That's what it says. If you have a soft view of God as a celestial grandfather in a heavenly rocking chair, the one who only provides pleasantness for your life, that is not the God of Naomi and Ruth. Listen to the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. The depth of the theology that this woman has is incredible. She says in her prayer, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and he exalts Remember that when we get to the end of our message today. Remember that. He kills, makes alive, brings down to Sheol, raises up. He makes poor, he makes rich, he brings low, he exalts. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 14, in the days of prosperity, be happy, but in the days of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Hmm. Or what about Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 38? The alarming description there is that he says, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Hmm. 
You see, an anemic, weak, diluted, and shallow view of God is common among a lot of Christians today. That explains why overwhelming despair, fear, depression, darkness fills the lives of people when hardship comes. I have never seen the fear in the culture that we have today as great as it is now ever in my life. Fear dominates the culture. It's everywhere. It explains why so many resort to psychiatric meds because in reality, they have no hope. Why do they have no hope? Because they do not have a sovereign God that's providential. Their view of God is not the God of the Bible. It is an impersonal and tepid God of this culture. Bad karma has taken over them. An evil destiny and fate has fallen upon them outside of God's control or intentions. Their God sits idly by, caring but powerless, sympathetic but weak, experiencing their pain but no remedy. The God of the average Christian today is pitiful and puny. That was not the God of Naomi, Ruth, or Boaz. Now, knowing that your Lord has a grand purpose changes everything in your perspective about your life. His providence is at work. Even in the minute details of everything that you experience in life. Let's go to back to Ruth chapter 2. Grateful for Jay reading the whole chapter, but let's pick up in verse 21 for a moment. It says, Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this with his maids, so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, there are three verses in this text, and they're basically three insights into God's providential care that you need to see. There's three verses here and three insights. Number one is that the Lord's providential care is personal. That is verse 21. The Lord's providential care is personal. There's a second thing. The second is in verse 22. The Lord's providential care is protective. That's the second thing. The Lord's providential care is protective. And then there's a third thing in verse 23, and that is that the Lord's providential care is purposeful. So there's three things. It's personal, it's protective, and it's purposeful. Now let's break this down to help you to understand this because this relates to everything that's going on in your life as well as to that of Ruth and Naomi's life. Let's look at verse 21. The Lord's providential care is personal. Your Lord will often work through other caring people in your life. 
Justice Boaz provided a safe work environment for Ruth. So our Lord is not detached from what is happening in your life. He's involved in every aspect of it, every moment, every situation, every trial, every setback. He is not an MIA God. In chapter 2 and verse 20, Naomi's eyes were finally opened to the fact that God has been in her life all along, directing and steering her life for his glory and ultimately for her good. And by the way, as we've talked about before, those two things are inseparable. You can't separate God's glory from your good. You can't separate those two. He has not withdrawn his loving kindness from her, but he has extended it to both the living and the dead. The difficult goodness of his providence included the taking of her husband and her two sons. That was hard. She's now able to not only accept their deaths as God's will, but to embrace their deaths through Yahweh's loving kindness. That's the way she describes it in verse 20. It's through his loving kindness. Her changed thinking and attitude has been dramatic. And now in verse 21, you can practically see how Yahweh's personal providence extended to the caring instructions that Boaz gave to Ruth. You have to read verse 21, considering the profound theology of Naomi's declaration in verse 20. You have to see that on the basis of verse 20. Now let's consider here, when we're taking a look at the Lord's providential care being personal, let's consider three critical points about the personal nature of God's providential care. Three points underneath this one. The first one is this. It's not deistic. It's not deistic. Let me explain what I mean by that. There are many Christians who think like deists. Many of the founding fathers of the United States who wrote the Constitution of the United States were deists. A deist believes that God's providence works generally, not specifically. This means that God gave people certain gifts and abilities. He gave nature certain laws, and he stepped back, and he let them fulfill their destinies entirely on their own. It's like winding up a mechanical swing and stepping back and letting it run on its own. When our kids were young, that was our babysitter, the mechanical swing. We put the baby in the swing, wind it up, let it roll, and man, it worked its charm. But eventually, it ran down, all right? And eventually, once it ran down, then you ah! could hear the kids yelping in the other room. Well, there are some who view the universe that way. That's what God did. God created all the laws of the universe, kind of wound it up, stepped back, and took his hands off of it, and let it just kind of run on its own, like a mechanical swing. Well, meanwhile, he offers some general oversight, according to this view, not a specific, of specific events, but of general laws that he has established in the universe. Now, that false counterfeit view of providence is 
fundamental to Pelagians, Arminians, Roman Catholics. But you cannot be a deist and really understand the theological depth of the book of Ruth. Evolutionary theory and natural science in the 19th century, with their inflexible teaching of the uniformity of nature, controlled by unaltering laws of nature, contributed to this kind of thinking among Christians. They believe that God set these laws in motion and the universe runs like some kind of robotic bulldozer, indiscriminately running over the lives of people without a caring driver at the wheel. When Naomi, even at her lowest point, bitter because she believed that God had unjustly abused her, never believed like a deist. No, she's bitter at God. Bitterness really is a personal vice directed at a personal being. She did not lose her husband and her sons because of arbitrary laws of nature and death. She knew even then Yahweh had done this. She didn't even blame the pagan gods of Moab or Satan. She laid the blame at Yahweh's feet. Providence to her was very personal. Now, there's a second thing that's important to realize here as we consider the personal nature of God's providence. It's not deistic, that's the first thing. But the second thing, it's not pantheistic either. It's not pantheistic. On one level, pantheism is the opposite of deism. In deism, God is mostly detached from the universe, uninvolved, and somewhat distant. But pantheism sees God everywhere in the universe. The universe is God. God is one with the cosmos. You may hear people say today, you must be one with the universe. That's pantheism. The word pantheism is taken from the combination of two Greek words, pan, which means all, and theism, which means God, so God is all. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy describes pantheism like this. At its most general, pantheism may be understood positively as the view that God is identical with the cosmos, the view that there exists nothing which is outside of God or else negatively as the rejection of any view that considers God as distinct from the universe. So we get a lot of that in our culture today, don't we? This is the reason why it's so hard for us to read the book of Ruth from the standpoint of God's providential care. Where do we get it from? The Lion King is nothing but a cultural way to communicate pantheism. Star Wars and several religious Uh, Groups like Hinduism, Kabbalistic Judaism, Celtic spirituality, Sufi mysticism, all of that is involved in pantheism. In fact, pantheism is fundamental to those belief systems. It's evident in the writings of popular authors like Goethe, Coleridge, Wadsworth, Emerson, Walt Whitman, D.H. Lawrence, Robinson Jeffers all those popular authors. You can even see its influence among many environmental extremists. The way you treat the environment is the way you treat God. Pantheism is a very active belief system today. We swim in a world of pantheism. The problem is, 
when many Christians begin to equate forms of pantheism in their understanding of God's providence. It's a counterfeit, counterfeit form of providence. The omnipresence of God is not the same thing as pantheism because God stands distinct from the cosmos. They are not the same, even though there is no part of the universe where God is not. The cosmos was created by God. God was not created by the cosmos. The God of pantheism does not care. The God of pantheism does not love. The God of pantheism does not grieve. The God of pantheism does not have compassion. The God of pantheism does not remember. It's not rational or self-conscious. It lacks all the essential elements of personhood. It's not affectionate. But Yahweh, the God of Naomi and Ruth, is a very personal God he has compassion and loving kindness. We can see this in verses 20 and 21. In verse 20, Naomi confesses the personal affection of Yahweh for her and Ruth. In verse 21, Ruth confirms Yahweh's loving kindness by describing Boaz's care for her. So when it comes to God's providential care being personal, it's not deistic, it's not pantheistic, but there's a third thing. It is both general and specific. It is both general and specific. Now think about this. And let me explain what I mean by that. Biblical theologians make a distinction between God's general and God's specific providence. General providence indicates his omnipotent control and maintenance over the entire cosmos. God is intimately involved in every molecule of everything that exists in the universe. God's general providence. His special providence refers to his care for every detail and every person in the cosmos, and that's especially true of his unique loving kindness for his own, his elect. Yahweh is not detached from the universe, nor is he the universe, but he, is, he constantly maintains control over the universe, and he is intimately involved with every specific aspect of the universe and every person in the universe. In other words, Yahweh is personally involved in the details of the lives of his people because he loves them and he cares about their welfare. That's the reason why Naomi says in verse 20, the Lord has not withdrawn his Loving kindness, that's literally the word, to the living and the dead. She sees his control over both. And the word kindness there in verse 20 is the special Hebrew word chesed, loving kindness. It's a special term used only in reference to the Old Testament to describe his unique love for his own people. It's a very special reference to his redemptive love for them. One theologian speaks about Christians who deny the providence of God. 
and says, at the same time, it must be said that it involves a very poor, superficial, and unbiblical view of God to say that he does not and cannot concern himself with the details of life, cannot answer prayer, give relief in emergencies, or intervene miraculously in behalf of man. Yahweh has done this, you understand, on behalf of Naomi and Ruth. Well, think about this. Both Naomi and Ruth knew this because she, they understood the covenant. They, they understood the Mosaic covenant. Um, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, when God gave it, he says, Then the Lord passed in front of him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. There's chesed. There's that Hebrew word. And truth, who keeps chesed, loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren, the third and fourth generation. We've talked about this before. This is not something whereby this uh, mic's just slowly sinking in the West. Here. Okay, here we go. Thanks. So... And we said that this is not generational curses. The Bible no, does not uh, advocate generational curses. It means to each generation that continues the sins of the previous generations. That's what it means. Psalm 17 and verse 7, where it says, Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. That's our Lord, as David says. In the Jewish tradition, the great Hallel, which is Psalm 136, is a psalm of thanksgiving describing worshipful praise to Yahweh for his providential loving kindness. The entire Psalm 136. Both Naomi and Ruth experienced Yahweh's personal attention of loving kindness during this time of great desperation in their lives. Now, what does... Yahweh's covenantal, covenantal care or loving kindness really mean? Well, it means that divine love condescending to his creatures, more especially to sinners, in unmerited kindness. In the Institutes, John Calvin explains God's providence by saying, there is no erratic power or action or motion in creatures, but that they are governed by God's secret plan in such a way that nothing happens except what is knowingly and willingly decreed by him. Nothing. Sinclair Ferguson, in a neat little book called A Heart for God, says the providence of God is the way in which he governs everything wisely, first for the glory of his own name and second for the ultimate blessings of his children. So, the Lord's providential care is personal. It's not deistic, it's not pantheistic, but it is general and specific. Now, moving on to our next verse in verse 22 we find out that it is also protective. It is also protective. The Lord's providential care is protective. Naomi acknowledges the honorable goodness of Boaz's intention 
in verse 22. Uh, and Because Ruth was at high risk of physical abuse and even death if she were to glean in the fields of other Israelites. She was an incredibly vulnerable Moabite woman. Remember that the Israelites and the Moabites were arch enemies at the time. Yahweh is personally working through the goodness of Boaz to be a protection for Ruth. In verse 22, Naomi's description to Ruth on how she understands Yahweh's providential protection working out in their lives. Verse 22 is really a practical commentary on the providential loving kindness of Yahweh that she mentions in verse 20. So Yahweh's providential loving kindness is seen in his protection of Ruth in the fields around Bethlehem from other Israelites that may want to harm her or even kill her. Now, here when it comes to the Lord's providential care being protective, let me examine three observations about how God exercises his providential protection of his people. Three observations we want to make. The first one is this. It is not naturalism. It's not naturalism. Again, let me explain what I mean. Naturalism is a philosophical assumption that everything in life arises from natural properties and causes. The cosmos operates only based upon the natural properties and causes that are part of the laws of the cosmos. So there's no such thing as supernatural causes or events. Naturalism raises its ugly head among Christians when they reduce the book of Ruth to a romantic love story between Ruth and Boaz. Have you ever heard that? Boaz is just a really nice guy who was attracted to this young Moabitess, and so he's very kind and protective of her, they say. Boaz is a protective alpha bad boy with a heart of gold. I mean, just his name, Boaz, sounds like a buff, tough, inked, hard superego, a superhero who sweeps in to rescue helpless Ruth and her heart is left breathless. It is the harlequin romance of the Old Testament along with the Song of Solomon. I've read too many commentaries like that and even heard sermons on Ruth that give that idea. It reduces this book to meaningless naturalism with heavy doses of romantic emotionalism absent of any kind of substantial theology. Or even worse, it detaches the events of the book from the historical redemptive purposes of the Old Testament because all these events are there to point towards the coming of the Messiah. So reducing Ruth to a love story does it violence. Again, Naomi and Ruth did not view the instructions and the advice of Boaz, that is to protect Ruth, as a romantic gesture. It was seen as an expression, in verse 20 again, of the loving kindness of Yahweh. Wow. If it was a romantic gesture, then why does Boaz allow Ruth to keep on working so hard in the fields? That doesn't seem very romantic to me. He could have said, stop working, I'll send you all the food you need. He does care for Ruth, but it is a very practical care of her based upon 
her treatment of her mother-in-law, which we read earlier, back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So there's no hint of romantic interests in his actions at all. Boaz sees the faith of Yahweh in Ruth, and so he deeply respects what he sees there in her faith. It is the same faith that is in his heart as well. This is the faith that Yahweh has placed sovereignly in his life and in his heart. And through his eyes of faith, he's able to see the genuineness of Ruth's trust in Yahweh and then in the Mosaic Covenant, which was incredibly remarkable for a Moabite. The providential care of Yahweh is personal and is divinely, personally protective. It's not a result of some natural romantic encounter. Now, there's a second thing. Not only is it not naturalism, but secondly, it's not materialism either. Materialism is another counterfeit for divine providence. Why? It is the belief that the only thing that really matters in life is physical or physical survival, and that can only come from acquiring as many material possessions as possible. It's a form of philosophical monism, which believes that life consists merely of matter. Consuming food, wearing clothing, having adequate shelter is all that matters. And this is where it's important for you to understand that Naomi and Ruth see what has happened through Boaz's care for them as more than just meeting their need for survival. They are not materialists. And they see bigger issues at stake here that involve Yahweh's covenantal promises. They are bigger pictured saints, all right? And there's a sense in which you going through the difficulties and trials providentially that you go through in life, you've got to be able to step back and like them be bigger pictured saints. What is God doing? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to the same spiritual insight about life. He says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? How do we know? Because Naomi and Ruth attribute Boaz's care to the loving kindness of Yahweh. So in this protective providence of Yahweh, it's not naturalism or materialism that protects Naomi and Ruth. It is a loving and caring God. This is why, thirdly here, it is both good and righteous. In other words, the Lord's protective care is its not just personal, it's protective. And it is good and righteous. In both naturalism and materialism, there's no goodness or righteousness. It is only naturalistic causes, material matter, nothing good, nothing bad. They just are. The cosmos is neither good nor bad. So people and their lives become indifferent, copacetic. They're impassionate, believing that nothing can change what is. In fact, one of the first funerals I officiated as a pastor involved an unbelieving man whose motto in life was this. 
talking with his daughter and preparing for the funeral. I said, could you describe me how you would describe your father's life? And she said, well, his motto for life was, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. What a sad life. No purpose to anything that happens. Really? It's a song written by the team of Jay Livingston and Ray Evans that was published back in 1955. That's all you have with naturalism materialism. However, in a divinely ordered and maintained cosmos, things happen for a reason. Like, why did God pour out his judgment on wickedness? Why doesn't he do that? The Apostle Paul explains in Romans 2, do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance. There's a reason behind every action or lack of action from God. David reveals this when he says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was a statement of David's belief in the providential protection of God. In the book, Trusting God, Jerry Bridges explains, God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all of his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. So the Lord's providential care is protective. It's not naturalism. It's not materialism, but it is good and it is righteous. That brings us to verse 23, our third major point. Verse 23, our third major point. The Lord's providential care is purposeful. Now, this is good, so follow me. The Lord's providential care is purposeful. Verse 23, Ruth was good at following the advice she was given. She followed the instructions of Boaz, and she trusted the evaluation of her mother-in-law that we saw in verse 22. She stuck close to the maids of Boaz, and she continued to live with Naomi. So verse 23 indicates that Yahweh provided in such a way that both Naomi and Ruth began to thrive. Formerly, they were destitute, hungry, without much hope. For Ruth, that meant living in a hostile country. But by God's design, they're now flourishing. Not just physically, but spiritually. You can see that in verse 20. There's an expectant resilience about life as they look towards both the immediate and long-term future. And this is important for you to see at this particular point in our study because Naomi and Ruth believed that the Mosaic Covenant and the promises of God contained the hope they needed for the future. They understood that there was a larger reason behind their preservation. There's even a larger reason behind their losses. They did not know all the details of it, but they did understand that something unique was happening. Larger eschatological purposes were slowly being realized here. And this is beginning to dawn on them. 
So when it comes to the Lord's providential care as being purposeful, let me make three observations here. Number one, it's not restrictive. It's not restrictive. God's purpose in his providence is not intended to limit his people. Our Lord's frowning providence is not to cause his people misery, but to bring them blessing and to bless all nations through them. In Exodus chapter 19, Yahweh says to Israel, you yourselves have seen what I have done to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel, God says. So, Moses came and called the elders of the people together, and they set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded them. That's Ezekiel chapter 19, verses 4 through 7. Now, listen carefully on how one Old Testament theologian describes the relationship between the Mosaic Covenant, sometimes called the Sinaitic Covenant, and the promised reign of the Messiah. He says, the purpose of the Sinaitic covenant was to fulfill the promise to the patriarchs concerning a nation and to provide a kingdom over which the Judaic sovereign could rule. It was important to note that the election and the redemption of the nation, Israel, was not for the sake of the nation itself, but was for the purpose of creating a people who could model among the kingdoms of this earth what is meant to be the dominion of the Lord and who could serve as a channel by which his salvation could be mediated to them. The role of Israel then was twofold, paradigmatic and redemptive. This is why the Mosaic Covenant was a conditional sovereign vassal type and not like that made with Abraham, namely an unconditional royal grant. So long as Israel discharged her covenant mandate faithfully, she would continue to exist and be blessed. If and when she failed to do so, however, she could anticipate the termination of her role and its benefits. In any case... The reigning and saving purposes of the Lord would continue unimpaired. For what the nation could not do collectively in history could and would be done by its greatest child individually and with eternal repercussions. Thus Israel, the servant, and the Messiah, the servant, find perfect harmonization in Isaiah. What the former failed to achieve as light to the nations the latter accomplished by his vicarious suffering and death. Now, I know it was a long statement, but I hope you followed that because Naomi and Ruth saw themselves as faithful to the covenant. And rather than viewing the Mosaic covenant as being something that was restrictive or inhibitive, they saw it as a blessing now in their lives. The blessings that they now enjoy because they kept the covenant. They maintained faith in what Yahweh was doing. 
their understanding of their place and the promises of the Mosaic Covenant helped them to see that all the difficult losses in their lives had a good eschatological reason. God was behind their frowning providence. They were a part of a bigger scheme of things. Now, you too are a part of a new and greater covenant. You are part of his bride, the church. Are you able to see your difficulties concerning his promises that he has made to his beloved bride? You are his bride. And he wishes to give you an eschatological hope. So the first thing here is that it's not restrictive. The second thing is that it's not vindictive. It's not vindictive. Charles Spurgeon once preached on Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. It actually speaks of God's work being like a wheel. And so Spurgeon, in his sermon, compared God's providential work like a wheel. This is what he said. I have just hinted at the reason why providence is like a wheel because sometimes one part of the wheel is at the top and then it is at the bottom. Sometimes this part is exalted and another time it sinks down to the dust. Then it is lifted to the air and then again by a single revolution it is brought down again to the earth just as our poet sings. Here he exalts neglected worms, deceptors, and a crown, and there the following page he turns and treads the monarch down. So it is with our life. Sometimes we are in humble poverty and hardly know what we shall do for bread, and at other times the wheel revolves and we are brought into the comfort of wealth. Our feet stand in a spacious room. We are fed with corn and wine. We drink of the cup overflowing its brim. And again, we are brought low through afflictions and famine. A little while, another page is turned, and we are exalted to the heavens and can sing and rejoice in the Lord our God. I have no doubt that many of you have experienced far more checkered life than I have, and therefore, you can feel that your life has been as a wheel. Oh, man, thou art strong and great and rich. Thou mayest stand now in the uppermost part of it, but it is a wheel, and you may be brought low. And you, poor, who are depressed and downcast, who are weeping because you know not where you shall lay your heads, that wheel may revolve, and you shall be lifted up. Our own experience is never a stable thing. It is always changing, always turning around, The fly that sits now on the edge of the wheel may be crushed by its next revolution and be brought to the dust of death the next day. The world may cry Hosanna to its minister today and the next day say, crucify him, crucify him. Such is the state of man. Providence is like a wheel. Naomi and Ruth understand the analogy of providence being like a wagon wheel. In Ruth 1, the wheels of their lives were stuck in the mud, sunk deep into the mire, unable to see the light of day. 
But as God worked and the wheel of providence turned, and in Ruth 2, they now see light dawning. Yahweh has not forgotten them. He is still at work. The dark side of providence is not vindictive. God does not enjoy the suffering of his people, even though some of it is necessary to continue to move the wagon of redemption towards his appointed goal. That's part of the problem. That's why we say that this providential care is very purposeful. It has that appointed goal. Jeremiah's clarity helps here in Lamentations 3.33. It says, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. And then later on in verse 39 of Lamentations 3, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? That's a great question. So these truths, you understand, are vital if you're going to maintain hope when providence begins to frown on your life. Your wheel is on the downside. The last thing is that this purposeful providence is directive towards an eschatological end. It's directive towards an eschatological end. This has ultimate and immediate consequences. Ultimately, it is the preservation of all things towards a new heavens, new earth, which you will enjoy the eternal reign of Lord Jesus Christ. The immediate consequence will often involve sometimes the persecution and sometimes the preservation of his own people and their care and safety. One theologian says it like this, Providence then is the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them towards their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature, all to the glory and praise of God. This divine, sovereign, benevolent control of all things by God is the underlying premise of everything that is taught in Scripture. Listen. You cannot properly understand the theology of Ruth without understanding God's providence. And you cannot understand God's providence without understanding a personal, protective, and purposeful God. And you cannot understand a personal, protective, and purposeful God without understanding the promised Messiah. And you cannot understand the promised Messiah until you understand the Lord Jesus Christ And you cannot understand the Lord Jesus Christ without his sanctifying lordship. And you cannot understand his sanctifying lordship without being justified. God's sovereign providence, his providential protection. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the events that we see unfolding in the book of Ruth, they are profound. And they cause us to reflect upon our own lives and reflect upon our own lack of faith when things become difficult, hard. When we are experiencing a frowning providence. But we've got to remember, it is the very fact that we know that a rational, loving, caring God a God who practices chesed, loving kindness towards his children, 
that is in control of all of these events. There's not a step that I take. There's not a step that anyone takes without being ordered by God. So I pray that you will help us to serve our purposes in serving and glorifying you. And we know that that is what is going to be best, even for our good. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.